nature loves diversity, especially in depleted soils. And so, and that gets back to the importance of microbes because they are synergistically tied to the plants and photosynthesis. They're essential in our ability to maintain or recover depleted soils. Literally, it appears there's going to be trillions, not billions, but trillions of dollars spent to agricultural producers to sequester carbon. This is going to be over the next 30 years or longer. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. I, I think there's a new frontier. It's all right under our feet. And around the world, we're having people paying attention to, paying even more attention to what's going on underground. And, and actually, my guest today, as a company that's paying attention to things underground for all of the obvious reasons of producing food, but just paying attention to how healthy this, our soils are and taking into account attention to regenerative production systems and so forth. And I'm happy to welcome Ben Cloud. Ben is a CEO of BioDell Ag. And Ben, glad to have you on Farm to Table Talk. Great to be here, Roger. Thank you. feels to me, Ben, that you're kind of edge of that frontier with the company that you're establishing now. Did I put too much on you for that? No, I think that's uh, it's a great question. I, I would definitely say we're still focused on global uh, production, food production, and the like. Uh, but we have had to look back now towards... Uh, restoring soil health and uh, our farming practices of the last 75 years or so have uh, allowed our soil health to diminish primarily the soil organic matter or the amount of carbon. It's an opportunity right now to restore that uh, and to enhance our agricultural practices and uh, you know produce uh, a more sustainable food supply as well as uh, meet the uh, the consumer needs. You know, I have to jump in and just say that as much as I've talked about this before, and I appreciate what you've just said, it's hard taking in the view of the whole world. I mean, because um, you're in Arizona, I'm in California, I've been in other states, I've been most all of the other states, and they're all different. You know, there's different levels of, of needs, but I, I guess it's probably safe to say that everywhere things could be done better there could be improvements and and why don't we kind of jump into what led you into developing a company that you have right now that's trying to focus on some of those needs what brought you to this frontier i'll tell you a very uh personal story i was in uh in australia back in 2001 with a group of farmers and we were touring the Murray-Darling River area in northern, northern Victoria. And that area at that point in time was suffering a serious issue with the river, the uh, lack of flow, increasing salinity, all sorts of challenges, much like we're seeing today with the collapse of the Colorado River here in Arizona. 
And listening to one of the speakers, a government official who was a climatologist, he said, what you Yanks don't understand is that in Australia, because of our latitudes, we're, when you have a one degree difference in change of, uh, of average temperatures, we have a four degree difference here in Australia. And that impacted me at that point in time, caused me to think about, you know, maybe this, uh, these climate issues, this accumulation of, of CO2 gases in our atmosphere has some real validity and real issues. And, uh, you know, at, at that point in time, I'd been farming for 30 years and, and thought, you know, we need to take this serious. And of course, when I came back home, uh, and began to discuss some of these topics with my my climate denying friends. Uh, you know, I found out real fast that hey, I'm I'm uh, I'm outcast. This is not something anyone wants to talk about or consider. So we've come a long way since 2001 when I was on that trip, and uh, there's been a number of steps along the way, of course, that has uh, brought me to where we are today. You know, I, I have to pause for a minute and just observe the comment you just made. There's climate denying it. My impression is there's less and less of it. And some people are, you know, see everything as being political and being extreme. And then and many are responding to the thought that Al Gore 30 years ago was um, exaggerating. He might have been a little bit because some of the things he was projecting back then aren't, aren't what's evolving. Uh, it'll take longer to be able to have sea rise to the point that you're going to have San Francisco underwater or anything like that. But now more and more people say, well, there are changes and we've had something to do with it. And there must be something that we can can do. It's getting as close as I've ever seen to getting a consensus that um, the future is very disconcerting. And so back to like the point that you're saying, the, the net effect of the heat, the droughts, the extreme weathers and so forth um, are a threat to, you know, food production and profitable farming. So you come back, you get off the plane from Australia and you start thinking there's something more that can be done here, even though some of your old friends and neighbors might have said you're a little crazy, Ben, uh, you're overreacting to this, but you plowed ahead. And then what did that lead you to? What, what, uh, once you say that you recognize this and, and a light bulb went off when you were in Australia, where did you start looking to think, you know, what can I do different? Or where is a product? Or where is something that, that we should be considering here that we're not currently? You know, you're right, Roger. The, uh, the consensus about climate change is, uh, has definitely changed a lot since that point in time. But what I did when I when I got back, I began looking at, you know, what are some of the possible solutions? Once I had become convinced there was a serious issue here and that, quite frankly, it literally threatened uh, our, our society, our society survival long term. And I began studying about how society, societies have declined and the like. And so it, it spurred me to action. And at that point in time, I really began looking uh, closely at renewable fuels, renewable energy, uh, ethanol, uh, biodiesel, those kind of, uh, of products and how uh, we could get involved in the manufacture and, and transition to those kind of uh, products. 
But then I had a friend who worked for the, uh, the nuclear plant uh, facility here in Arizona. And uh, he said, Ben, you need to really look at algae biomass and what it can do. And I had never heard of it. And within a short time, we had uh, organized a group and formed a company called FICO Biosciences. And this is 2005 at that time. And we began uh, looking at how we could commercialize algae biomass as a biofuel feedstock. And uh, uh, so we ended up constructing a large pilot facility here in Arizona. And uh, uh, we staffed it with a PhD and a master's biologist and all of that. And, and I, I got to run the deal for five years. And in that period of time, we quickly shifted away from algae in particular to cyanobacteria, which we found was uh, just a, a very hardy microorganism uh, that, uh, you know, NASA had actually credited for creating our atmosphere some three and a half billion years ago. And so uh, it really opened some eyes and some doors and we began exploring that. And if you don't mind, I can go on a little further about that. No, please do. Please do. Because I've got some questions I'm going to store up and because you're throwing some terms out here that I'm not familiar with and I'm not familiar with is it cyanobacteria and so forth. So right. um, jump in. Well, cyanobacteria are what we found over the five years that we operated this pilot facility was that the highest and best use for cyanobacteria was actually as a soil amendment or even further as a soil reclamation product. Uh, when it's applied and it doesn't take a lot of it on a, uh, per acre, it, uh, it rapidly restores the soil's microbial biomass and functions so that now all of a sudden we're cycling salts through the soils, which are an issue for us here in Arizona, of course. We're reducing the amount of water because we're aggregating soil particles rapidly. We're especially reducing the amount of nitrogen fertilizers that we need to apply by 30% right out of the gate the first year and more the second. And uh, uh, most importantly is that it sequesters a lot of carbon in the ground. And so uh, we found this to be a, a, a very interesting prospect. And, and at that point in time, we could see the, the early emergence of regenerative farming, those discussions, the success of the organic growers who were able to move completely away from conventional practices and succeed. And, and I, I realize there's points that could be brought up there. But in general, uh, we saw an opportunity for this. Uh, now, today, as we're seeing uh, the, the uh, uh, really what I would consider to be a, a pretty significant transition to regenerative practices across the farm belt overall, and uh, uh, growers are looking for low-risk uh, 
inputs that they can utilize to, uh, uh, you know, ultimately get into a position to sell carbon credits. Uh, we felt like, okay, it's time for us to move this to the market. Uh, at, at, in 2012, we took a look at it and we decided that, nope, the market really is not there yet. It's too risky for us to enter into it. And so we basically put it on the shelf, all the work that was done over that five-year period with our pilot facility. And then in uh, uh, 2017, 2018, we, uh, we pulled it back off the shelf, started uh, uh, large-scale field trials at that point, and, uh, and have developed to where today we have this product that we call Sequester. And, you know, I want to go back to this for a minute. So you're doing something else, really. And then you just dis you discovered uh, this this role that uh, not just where you were looking at, at algae biomass, but in the process of developing and the, the work you were doing there, you discovered cyanobacteria. Now, is that particular type of bacteria routinely in, in soils or... Um, uh, that not just the process that you're able to create it, is it something that's naturally occurring pretty much around the world? Yes, it is. It's uh, uh, cyanobacteria as well as algae strains are in every teaspoon of soil that you can, uh, you can find. And so it is commonly there. In the end, what we're really doing is increasing uh, the amount that's in the field uh, and it has great effect on overall soil function, restoration of soil health, uh, and the like. So it's uh, it, to, to explain just a little bit further, cyanobacteria are a nitrogen-fixing autotroph. And what it means by an autotroph is that they, they basically bring their own energy to the party. If you're, if you're a bacteria, common bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, you, those are heterotrophs, which means they have to be fed in order for them to grow. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the advantage here practically for a farmer in the field uh, is that you, you can apply a little bit of sequester and get the same effect as if you were applying tons of compost or running a, an intensive grazing program for years uh, or using a microbial extract together with a biofertilizer combination. Uh, we equate those with uh, a much smaller volume of input and, and greater efficacy in the field. I think about the, these microbes now. I didn't used to think about microbes at all, but there's all sorts of microbes and and so it you're identifying you're identifying a strain that's particularly useful it's nitrogen fixing it's it seems like it has other characteristics that uh, make it desirable because when you start looking at what's in the environment or what's in the soil you know, there's lots you could choose from and to be able to narrow it down and say this particular has has a, has a lot to offer um that's an interesting process well that's uh that's exactly the way the uh various companies in the in the uh, biologic microbial field uh operate uh they're some are trying trying now to catalog 
all of the many hundreds of thousands anyway of strains of, of different uh, microorganisms and trying to find the one or two that have a significant impact. But that, uh, that is contrary to and opposite to the way nature actually operates. Nature loves diversity and uh, especially in depleted soils. And so if, if I'm a, uh, if I'm a developer of a, of a, and of a product and I have found a new, uh, uh, a new microbe that I like, I can throw it out there and I could probably get good response rates and performance for a year or two. But really what we are challenged with is we have to have a fundamental shift in the way our soils are functioning overall. And that gets back to the importance of microbes because they are synergistically tied to the plants and photosynthesis. They're essential in our ability to maintain or recover depleted soils. Our cyanobacteria, for example, is not just one strain. What we developed during our five years of, of development if back in 2005 or 2007 to 2012 was we identified four uh, specific strains that we blend together and we call it cyano blend. And these strains include the ability not only to fix nitrogen, but to solubilize phosphates uh, and produce a lot of signaling compounds in the soil uh, that benefit not only soil health, but crop production. So I've had somebody describe to me before the role of the microbes that you can, and I picture it, it's like they're little dump trucks uh, that they're, um, they're, they're bringing product into the, into the roots and the plant is, uh, you know, like feeding and it's, and the, the picture I have of the product you're describing that's nitrogen fixing it's not just your average dump truck. I mean, in the process of, of transporting uh, the, this, the, the nitrogen, too, is part of what they're delivering, that they can convert it so it's usable by the plant or more usable by the plant. That's, um, that, makes it, that makes it a special dump truck. Well, that, that's very true. In fact, we like to call our cyanobacteria the, the D10 caterpillars of the microbial world. They're the heavy lifters. And uh, so especially when you put that combination together, uh, as we have under the product called CyanoBlend, uh, we rapidly break down bedrock into the sand, silt, and clay particles. We aggregate those particles uh, and, uh, you know, established a, uh, a base of nitrogen and, and the like that help to uh, uh, kick off and support the crop as it grows. That's why we like to apply this product right at planting uh, and let it uh, grow along with the crop. Well, I want to point out to my listeners that um, there's a, there are other companies that are working on things like this. And, you know, I, I wanted to feature you today, uh, not because you, this isn't a commercial. This is just a curiosity. Um, people want to know what's going on from farm to table knowing that this new frontier and you are plunged into it and how a private company is making this decision and you've got a product, ultimately a product to sell and other people have products to sell and your job will be eventually to be able to clarify why yours is a, 
especially good. You're, you hopefully will be successful in delivering a product that, that way as, as well. So it's, it's, uh, but it does bring up this other thing that, that there are lots of companies now that are trying to do it. And I think as you pointed out a few minutes ago, in some cases, they're pointing out maybe they've got certain microbes that they're looking at. You're starting with, um, I think a premise, it sounds like, that what nature wants is kind of a community, uh, how it plays well with others and how that that uh, that environment uh, in the soil is not is not neat and tidy and just takes one component, but it's it's contributing to this kind of useful chaos down there that uh, I'm not picking out very good terms, Ben, but but. Uh, you're exactly right, Roger. That that's exactly what we're trying to do. And and uh, uh, sorry to get off on talking about our product in particular, but there's a lot of good work going on uh, in the industry. There's a lot of great products that are out there and available. And there is definitely more than one way to restore soil health and function and sequester carbon in the process. Now. Help me picture this part of it, though. I can, when you start talking about these tiny little things, those microbes, what's the product end up looking like? Uh, you know, you're able to create an environment and you've got a patent on your process to be able to arrive at the product that you have. But when you deliver it to those, you know, farmers want to, to get product, are they getting, a, you know, a bag of powder they're getting cans of liquids what's what kind of form does it take for someone that's using the product yes it comes in liquid liquid form uh there is dry powders uh that uh, that could be done but we are currently focused on liquids uh, the objective is to apply a certain uh, I, I like to use weight calculations so we want to apply a certain number of grams of the uh, of the cyanide blend per acre uh, at planting and then we'd like to see uh, see another application post-emergence uh, to really establish that uh, microbial biomass in the soil and, and get it functioning at a high level uh, so uh, for example a gallon of our product per acre at planting uh, gets us to the uh, the level that we feel like should be in the soil uh, at, at germination time. Is it mostly applied in a drip irrigation? Uh, no, it can it can actually be applied in any form of irrigation system, or it can be applied in furrow, side dress, uh, you know, drench over the seed row, uh, just about any way you want to apply it. Uh, the post-emergence application, uh, it is a soil amendment, so it's so typically you're not uh, uh, talking about it as a fertilizer, uh, but it can be applied as a foliar in a foliar application method. Method, and uh, you know most of the product will cover the plant as well as drop into the soil, and uh, and have the the proper impact. Well, I started this whole conversation with recognizing that when you go around the world, you just can't say soil is soil. I mean, all soils seem to be different. Uh, 
you know, the, the area climates are different. And even though they're changing and many areas are getting hotter than they used to be. Um, but are there certain regions that you find that are more receptive or it works better? Uh, like in the South versus the West or the Midwest or cornfields versus, you know, almond orchards? Well, number one, we're not crop specific. We're, we are focused on soil and soil health and, and restoring its function. For the grower, that's very important because if their soil is, is, uh, is, is functioning, when I say functioning, I mean that it's cycling carbon, it's cycling water, cycling uh, nutrients, and it's actually cycling salts. Now for us here in the West, salts are a big issue. And so that's where we find that when we apply this product, uh, we can dramatically reduce the salinity levels in the soil. And uh, I can explain how, well, let me just make this one point. It, it basically, cyanobacteria is effective in converting uh, sodium to a, a calcium ion. And uh, so it, it, it converts it from being something that's, uh, damaging or negatively impacting a crop and water holding capacity into something that's beneficial to the crop. So that's really a, one of the benefits. The second benefit then is that leads to significant water savings, which, uh, as you know, our issues here in, in Arizona right now are, uh, are getting severe uh, as far as water supply. And so if you've got something like this that can reduce your water consumption by 20, 40 percent, that's a big deal. Uh, then we get into the fertilizer savings uh, because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's bringing a lot of nitrogen into that root zone as well as uh, synergistically working with the plants and the uh, other microbes that, uh, that begin to grow because of, of, uh, of this product's presence. Uh, you know, then we're saving a lot on nutrient costs as well. And right now, with nitrogen costs the way they are, uh, that should be motivation enough for most growers to look at these kind of products. Now, can this extend all the way down to community gardens and local, you know, small farms? Is there is there some scale that that they have a, a, an advantage using the product, or is there going to be opportunities for it to scale down as small as you as, as you'd like? Well, basically anywhere a plant's growing in soil can benefit from this. So uh, we do have a, in our marketing approach, uh, we, we break it into three categories. One is what we call the, the residential uh, garden landscape, small farm uh, applications. Uh, and, you know, they can contribute and do their part in, in uh, sequestering carbon back in the atmosphere. We think that's a that's an unexplored market uh, at this point in time. Our primary sales, though, are, are to uh, commercial crop producers, of course, of, of any size, uh, in any location. Uh, we have found that even though we are really uh, performing well in these challenging areas, like in Arizona today, uh, when we're in, in other areas that aren't facing salinity issues or the like, they still see a very positive response uh, to this product. Uh, and then the third category for us is we're working uh, with 
some large uh, large landowners, ag landowners, and uh, institutional type landowners who are being pushed by their shareholders and management to uh, get on uh, get on with with carbon sequestration. Uh, I mean, we're seeing such a large influenced by government now the fact that we the u.s is re-engaged in the uh, uh paris accord and the like and uh literally it appears there's going to be trillions not billions but trillions of dollars spent to agricultural producers to sequester carbon and uh this is going to be over the next 30 years or longer but uh, their recognition that agriculture or ag lands have the capacity and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the ability to sequester carbon back into the soil is a, a major driver what, what we're doing and where we think this is going in the future. Well, you know, you're right. I, I think there are going to be trillions of dollars. There's billions already being announced in, by various government agencies, state levels, national and so forth, grants that are supporting uh, growers going to, towards regenerative approaches. Major companies, of course, are asking their growers or telling their, their growers they want them to use more regenerative practices, too. So let's start a benchmark right here, though. So up to now, what you've described, getting the product and the, describe the need for it, you're, you're talking about uh, actions that can hold down costs. Those costs include utilization of water, utilization of fertilizer. Um, and then what about, what about typically yields? I mean, given the fact you're, you know, it'd be good enough if it were just the same as ever. And you were able to hold down costs, but there are any other effects that you're recognizing in in the yields that come from, from when this is used? You know, the challenge with commercial growers is how how far they buy into the program. If they are applying, say, for example, uh, our, our product at planting it's going to enhance and, and give them a little better average crop yields over time. Uh, so they're applying our product, but they're still carrying on with, uh, you know, rather heavy uh, fertility applications, synthetic fertility, as well as uh, uh, chemical uh, applications. And every time something like that is applied to the soil, it's, it's antagonistic to the microbial world. So they have to recognize that they're not going to see as great a benefits uh, as, as those growers who have fully adopted a, a program. Now, I'm not saying that a grower should fully eliminate synthetics or all chemicals. It's just that you're going to have, a, a grower is going to have to prioritize uh, the soil health and, and methods of application of these products uh, to, uh, you know, pushing, for example, fertilizer applications could be pushed a little later in the, in the crop cycle. Uh, you know, there's a number of strategies. I don't want to bore you with getting into all the details of it, but uh, there's a number of strategies that could allow a grower to see rather significant yield increases as opposed to just uh, a better average over time. 
So explain to me, or explain to the listeners, how sequestration is taking place, because there's a lot of talk about being able to say, I'm a regenerative farming program, or, or there's a, a lot of brands that are saying we are uh, sourcing from regenerative agriculture producers. Where does this fit? I mean, how do you explain that that is actually taking place because of using these sorts of practices, that sequestration is greater than it would have been otherwise? Well, number one, most all of our soils today are in a depleted state. That means that the soil organic matter is at a low level. With that means that we cannot hold water like we used to, subject to a lot of runoff. Nutrients don't hold, they run off as well, creating a lot of problems that we all hear about. Uh, and so the, the key is restoring uh, soil health and function. And uh, uh, again, those four points that I made about uh, cycling carbon, water, nutrients, and salts, that's what we're looking to do. So when a uh, uh, when the soil is functioning as it, as it has a in natural uh, occurrences uh, prior to our current cultivating practices, by and large, it is um, uh, it naturally cycles carbon from the atmosphere through what's called the liquid carbon pathway. And so that anytime sunlight and carbon dioxide are, uh, are pulled into the plant through photosynthesis, that creates uh, high carbon sugars. Those carbons are released into the soil through the root system and uh, uh, the microbes then are the essential element at that point that consume those sugars to uh, release the nutrients that the plant needs to take up but what's left over after the, the microbes have consumed them are humic polymers that uh, are a stable form of carbon and so that's what uh, when we're talking about carbon credits that's what we're looking to measure is those uh, is that that volume of carbon uh, that has been sequestered through that pathway? So a lot of people don't know this, but this liquid carbon pathway is five times will, will generate five times the amount of carbon in the soil as compared to growing biomass on top of the soil and incorporating it into the soil. Hmm. A lot of growers have it wrong. They think, oh, I, if I grow more biomass on top, I'm going to put down more carbon. No, it's strictly a function of photosynthetic efficiency and having something growing on that soil all the time. And this is why cover crops are a very effective tool because, again, they're putting enough leaf surface on the area to keep cycling that carbon out of the atmosphere. Boy, I think we need to have you repeat that story a few times because that's uh, I've never heard it quite explained like that. And the uh, and, and instead, it's easier for people to just recognize um, cover crops, um, no-till, you know, some of these some of these processes uh, that are dealing with the biomass above ground. And I think that's good enough for a lot of people they can see that and they think oh okay i get that but what you're describing is a as a more effective means of, of of accomplishing that 
it's harder to make that explanation just like on a label or make it easy for people to to have that be part of their normal communications because it's a it's a little bit more abstract kind of um, thing to understand than again you can see biomass on the on the surface very true that is the challenge but you know the drive towards uh, uh, carbon sequestration and achieving marketable carbon credits in the soil is what's going to answer that for growers they're going to find these answers they're out there abundantly available more commonly now and uh, uh they'll, they'll they'll get it figured out you know in the process of figuring it out you've got across the country and across other countries as well they have the equivalent of extension service and land-grant universities and there's still people that are going to the specialists on various crops so I don't know how they're keeping up with all this because the, the market's moving so fast with companies like yours coming up with, with approaches. But so how are the land grants and how the extension service, how do they interact with keeping track of what programs like yours are doing to be able to answer questions for farmers that are looking for additional help? Because they can turn to extension and say, well, you're not selling the product. What do you think? How should I be using these? Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting to observe. The, the land grants are starting to catch on, and uh, it, they should be leading it. And in some cases, uh, in some areas, they do. There have been some really, uh, I, I think of uh, uh, Ray Archuleta, for example, from the USDA, uh, who's been a real thought leader in helping to get uh, growers to understand the function of soil how to protect it, uh, to, uh, how to maintain and, and achieve high crop yields, uh, things of that nature. And there's, there's many others uh, that I could mention that uh, are leading the way in this. Uh, you know, I, I would suggest when I look at the, the uh, commercial grower market, I, I, I'm really impressed with Meisner uh, Communications. I, I, I think their uh, no-till farmer magazine and uh, conferences and the like uh, are really uh, helping to, uh, you know, provide information that growers can can understand and, and implement. And uh, yeah, I know we've had a big push of the no-till uh, as, a, as a way of, uh, of, of generating possible carbon credits, but when you really measure the amount of carbon in the soil from just that practice alone, uh, you know, it, it, it's not achieving any significant volumes. It has to be the inclusion of cover crops. It has to be, uh, you know, taking the steps to restore that soil health and soil organic matter. So for example, here in Arizona, uh, you know, most of our soils, desert soils, are not naturally high in organic matter. But when you take a, a piece of new ground and, 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 uh, and bring it into crop production, it's naturally about three and a half percent soil organic matter. But if you go test most of our farmland here today, it's less than 1%. And so when you can restore that uh, soil organic matter level and get it back above 3%, there's some pretty amazing things start to happen in the field. And so, uh, you know, that's our objective with our 
product strategy and the like is to uh, is to provide growers the ability to to restore uh, that soil function and, and soil organic matter in their soil to where they can uh, can really re use a lot less water not be as uh, impacted by salinity issues that we're all faced with in the, here in this region and uh, and the crop uh, actually uh, its nutrient uptake goes up dramatically when those conditions are right. Well, I think it's an exciting area that you're involved with. I don't know if there's any way to make this connect with the end consumer because there are people who I listen to the podcast just like to know what's going on and they hear about regenerative agriculture. And there are people that when they go to restaurants and stores and so forth, they would like to have the reassurance that there's something happening in the food they're buying or consuming that was heading the right direction. It's hard for me to see how we can connect what you're doing all the way necessarily to a story on a, a brand's label or in a, in a menu or something like that, that, that makes it easier for consumers to be reassured that the, the, the products that they're supporting are using these kind of processes that, um, that they just feel are the right thing to do but it's a little complicated. Yes, it is. Uh, but at the same time, this is why we're, uh, for example, we chose the name that we chose for our product. Uh, we are embarking now on a marketing program for 2023. We originally thought it would be 2024, but we've seen the circumstances in the marketplace, uh, you know, drive us to actually move forward a year earlier. But that's why we are marketing to both the, you know, the residential uh, small farm market, who is really not going to be motivated by uh, the improvements so much as they're they they're, they're wanting to do something or contribute to this carbon issue. Then when you get into the ag, the commercial ag market, uh, you got to sell on the fundamentals, the the, the salinity reduction the fertilizer reductions, the water savings, and uh, the carbon is the last last uh, point on the, on the list there for those types of customers to consider. Then when we're talking about the, the large landowner institutional groups, well, they, again, just like the residential, they're driven a little more by the concept of CO2 sequestration. And that is very measurable year over year. We can, uh, which is essential, the, the measurement process is essential in establishing the carbon credits and, uh, and then getting them to a marketable state. And so, uh, you know, the performance of these kind of products have to be there and uh, have to be measurable. And, uh, uh, you know, for the large land, landowner groups, uh, you know, they are looking for crop tenants or tenants who, who lease oftentimes or joint venture uh, the crop production side of it. So we really are wanting to get the commercial growers aware of this type of process. But quite frankly, it's going to be the, uh, the large landowners like that who drive their tenants and uh, management teams to uh, to adopt these practices because they want to be able to go back to their investors and shareholders and say we are making progress on this front well ben there's a lot of progress to be 
chase down here and and you're contributing a lot to it if people want to know more about your products and how to you know what's happening what you're offering and and so forth where do they find that information our website uh, at sequester.ag uh, has a lot of lot of information there uh, that can be uh, can be had and they can certainly uh, inquire further from that point uh, to get more information well, and then one more kind of general question. If you're looking ahead and they're just informed people that are not necessarily farmers themselves, but they want to better understand this whole dynamic and, and the implications for regenerative production and maybe gets right down to their own home garden or community gardens and, and so forth. Um, what do they do? What do they do if people think, you know, I want to do the right thing. I want to understand this better. Uh Got any suggestions on how people can get themselves up to speed to, to have a more of appreciation for this frontier under our feet? Well, you know, um, if I can name a, a few publications and the like, there's sure. Uh, uh, I just really suggest they begin uh, with the Acres uh, Acres Magazine or uh, or conferences. Uh, they'll find there that uh, that you know they've generally been focused on organic, but this regenerative side of it has uh, has really taken hold, and uh, you know that's where you'll find uh, some of the researchers and some of the practitioners uh, that for the last you know 30, 40 years have have uh, demonstrated that you can actually. Uh, uh, grow crops and and uh, and be successful at it and actually improve uh, you know the resilience of the farming enterprise and the profitability of the farming enterprise and uh, so all of this applies both to the the residents and small farm operators and uh, uh, you know there's many others I if you just google renewables or regenerative agriculture you'll start finding a lot of uh, a lot of individuals or groups in the industry that uh, uh, are promoting that. I just think it's a good, healthy exercise for every grower to understand his soils. You know, I farmed for over 30 years, and I, I, uh, if I knew what I knew now, <laughs> yeah. back then, uh, I, I would have done things a lot differently. And uh, fortunately, I, I did uh, as before I had. Uh, decided to uh, to sell our land and, and the like in about the year 2000 I uh, uh, I was starting to utilize some of these practices you know that's just looking back I, I think every grower today needs to be fully aware of what's going on with their soil and if they'll deal with that first everything else in their farming enterprise will follow suit tell you what I, I think that you're making some really excellent points and best of luck with this new product and you know and I admire your being out there on the frontier and for this encouragement for people to pay attention to the regenerative agriculture so thanks for being on farm to table talk Roger it's been my pleasure thank you You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 